Greetings, friends. Welcome to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where we review films. Oh, no! Run! Hooray for sound effects. My name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. That's all? Just a film critic. With me, as always, is another film critic. Introduce yourself, other film critic. I am other film critic. Uh, my name was, is Bibbs. Everyone to... calls me William Bibiani. <laughs> your parents thought ahead then. Yeah, they were good. Na- if your name is other film critic. Yep. That's a name they thought I'd grow into. Um, yeah. My name is William Bibiani. Everybody mm. calls me Bibbs. And uh, yeah, it's Critically Acclaimed. We review uh, new movies here in Critically Acclaimed. This week, we're reviewing a bunch of them. We're reviewing A Quiet Place Part 2. An even quieter place, no doubt. A qu- uh, quiet placer? A, pla- a, place a quieter quiet, place. Place quieter. <laughs> a quiet place, too. Qu- place quieter. Place quieter. Even more quietly. Uh, we're reviewing the uh, new Disney film, Cruella. We're reviewing something called Swimming Out Till the Sea Turns Blue, which I believe is uh, what happened at the end of the movie Gattaca. It's a documentary film. I'll be talking about that one. It's a documentary film about the ending of Gattaca. <laughs> it's not about Gattaca. It's about Chinese literature. <laughs> That's very different. Uh, we're reviewing the new horror movie Skull, The Mask. We're reviewing the new film Plan B on Hulu. And we're reviewing the new doc about Moby called Moby Doc. Isn't that clever? Yeah. Isn't that cute? So on the nose. And uh, it, you, it seems like it should lose points. You know, we'll we'll talk about how that movie loses <laughs> points when we get to it. <laughs> uh, and uh, one thing we are not doing this week on Critically Acclaimed is having a streaming club, and that is not because something happened and we had to delay the movie streaming club, where we review movies that are also on streaming services but are older. Uh, we're actually moving that to its own podcast. We feel like it's time. Uh, every time we have a critically acclaimed streaming club segment, uh, ended up being a, at least around as long as the all the movie reviews that preceded it. So we figured, what the hell? Let's give the critically acclaimed streaming club its own podcast, mm-hmm. and it will be its own thing starting this week. Uh, so stick around. It should be up tomorrow. We're going to be doing uh, because the last poll on our Patreon page was a tie. We let our patrons decide what we review on the Critical Aim Streaming Club. Uh, we're going to be kicking it off with a double feature of a gnome named Gnorm, one of only two films directed by VFX maestro Stan Winston. Mm-hmm. It's about a, a gnome. His name is Gnorm, and he teams up with a cop to stop uh, bad guys. It's a, co- it's a cop movie with a gnome. Not and a gnome. That, and it's, that's the correct pronunciation. They According correct, to the film. They correct you in the course of the film. Yeah. We're also going to be reviewing Troop Beverly Hills, starring Shelley Long and everyone. Uh, yeah. <laughs> There's a yeah, lot that's... of cameos in that movie. Uh, so that's going to be coming up, all of those uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, films. So that's going to be on the streaming club, and that will be released tomorrow. But today, we're talking about the new stuff. What would you like to talk about first, William? Well, we we typically start with like the biggest release, right, well, and I think most people would have assumed that that would have been Disney's Cruella, but mm-hmm. at the box office, <laughs> it was A Quiet Place Part Two. Now, right. I suspect that probably has a lot to do with Disney's whole thing of if you want to pay extra, like it's like thirty bucks or something, thirty dollars, and yeah. you can get it immediately on their streaming service, Disney Plus, and. On one hand, if you're like one person, maybe two, buying a ticket, that doesn't seem like a good deal. If you're a whole family, 
that's a great deal. Yeah. So that, that's saving you like, like seriously, at least 20, 40 bucks on tickets, another 20, 40 bucks on mm-hmm. snacks, parking, not an issue. So yeah. I'm well, very curious what the streaming mm-hmm. numbers are to see if Cruella just wasn't that interesting to people or if it did blockbuster numbers on Disney plus and theatrically just okay. Well, because uh, Netflix set the precedent of streaming services never having to release their numbers, we'll never know that. They'll tell us uh, if they're amazing, it, basically, and that's it. Yeah. How successful the film is doesn't matter to me. Not really. Um, it shouldn't matter to anyone, really, unless you're an investor. Uh, mm. But Cruella is not grabbing the headlines, and it's not uh, setting box office records. Neither is A Quiet Place Part 2. But it's making impressive enough numbers that people are talking about it. And it's, So it's, why don't we talk about that one because of box office receipts. Okay. Now, I didn't get to see uh, A Quiet Place Part mm. 2. I did like the first A Quiet Place quite mm. a bit. It's a film directed by John Krasinski. And it stars uh, John Krasinski, Emily Blunt, and Millicent Simmons. M- Millicent Simmons is her name. Uh, yeah. And she's sort of the star this time around. Yeah. Uh, a Quiet Place, the end of the first A Quiet Place uh, found... Which, which was about uh, a, a near future uh, in which, like, aliens... Yeah, it's, it's a post-apocalyptic movie. Yeah. Uh, space aliens have invaded. They're blind. They can only hear you. And they have very sensitive hearing because their entire head is like an ear with teeth. And uh, they also attack and murder anything that they hear. Yeah, they too. find they find must find noise really annoying. They're like they're like Grendel and Beowulf. So <laughs> basically, uh, you have to be incredibly quiet all the time or else they'll just immediately show up and kill you. Yeah. Uh, which is you know, it's a bit of a flawed premise, but it's a great premise for a movie. It's really fun yeah. and leads to a lot of suspense. Uh, thin premise, uh, one that you'll be thinking about the holes in while you're watching the movie rather than after. Yeah. Like, uh, there's a bit in the original movie where, uh, in order to finally, like, be able to talk to his child, mm. John Krasinski takes the, uh, his child to a waterfall, which the aliens would naturally avoid because it's constantly noisy and there's nothing they can do about mm. it. And so he, he talks to his kid there, and which raises the question, why mm. don't you always live there? Just, yeah, set up home near a waterfall. Yeah, wouldn't that solve a lot of your problems? And the answer to that Instead, question is Yes. <laughs> and instead, they live in in the first movie. They live on this sort of repurposed farm, which has been completely tricked out with like alien sensing uh, mm-hmm. measures, like alien precautionary measures. So there's uh, alerts and lights that go on. They've laid sand down like for miles and miles so that their footfalls don't make any noise in the in the the woods. It seems to me like the effort it would take to set all that stuff up might make some noise and attract some attention. It would also take like a decade rather than like a month, which is probably how long it took. Uh, The opening of A Quiet Place Part 2, we get to see the first sighting of the aliens in flashback. So John Krasinski is back. Do we Um, confirm that they're aliens? Or is that still a mystery? They fall from the sky. Okay. They are aliens. Aliens. Good, because they were kind of vague about it in the first one. They're not like mutants out of the Umbrella Corporation or anything. They're they're aliens from outer space. Space aliens from outer space. Okay. uh, I wish that would have been the name of the movie. Space Space aliens aliens from from outer outer space. space. John Krasinski is directing again, and he's really uh, doing a lot of really creative things with the camera and with sound this time around. Like, Mm. he's really experimenting in some pretty exciting ways. I would say um, he sort of zooms in and out of what people are hearing in any given moment. So there's a lot of cool things with the sound mixing that uh, Millicent Simmons uh, 
she's a deaf actress playing a deaf character. Uh, she can't hear like, but the slightest sound. So we get to hear things from her perspective occasionally, which changes, you know, sort of the dynamic of what the, the tension is, who can, who can hear what and who's, uh, and who's, who's in immediate danger. After the intro where we get to see the, uh, Invasion, we get to cut back to the end of the first movie where Emily Blunt and the kids and a new baby are now trying to find a new home because their last one has been wrecked by aliens, as it was in the the climax of the last movie. Yeah. Uh, they end up falling into the company of Killian Murphy because he's played by Killian Murphy. You don't know if he's a villain or not. <laughs> With Killian Murphy, it could go either way, actually. Yeah, he's he's been well, great heroes uh, 28 Days Later, yeah, and yeah. he's also been great villains, Batman. Uh, and everything in between. He's a really versatile actor. I really like him a lot. Yeah, he's he's really really great. Uh, and it's pretty clear that he's not going to be the new Airsats father figure, even though he kind of fulfills that role. Uh, in fact, it's now up to Millicent Simmons, the young uh, young daughter who is maybe thirteen or so, uh, to essentially take up the mantle of central protector. Uh, they found out a. F- uh, a special trick where they can actually like force the alien heads open and then shoot them with a shotgun. Well, that's another detail about the aliens. They're bulletproof. Yeah. You can't just shoot them or blow them up. They're like yeah. nearly indestructible. So, um, in the climax of the last movie, they figured out a way to blow up their heads. Yeah. Uh, and now it's up to Millicent Simmons to find a radio tower so they can essentially Mars attacks them and set up, you know, the, the Slim Whitman music and make all their heads explode. I'll be calling you. <laughs> yep. It's it's not actually Slim Whitman. That's the movie Mars Attacks, uh, but it's something comparable. And the, the movie is essentially just a quest to get there. I'm not really sure what John Krasinski is trying to do or say other than just sort of play around with a fun monster movie premise. And he does it well. Mm-hmm. And it's fun. And that's kind of all you can really say. It's okay. It's okay. It's fun. It's fun to watch. Hey! There, you like Monster Mayhem? Good. There's some fun camera stuff that John Krasinski is doing. Great. I remember uh, when the... Millicent Simmons yeah. is the hero of this movie. She okay. is a great actress, and uh, I hope that she gets more and more roles. I've only seen her in three movies, uh, Quiet Place 1 and 2, and a wonderful film called Wonderstruck, uh, which... Uh, is about how great it is to have libraries around. <laughs> really wonderful movie. It's a, it's a great theme. Yeah, she she's just really forceful and confident and has a lot of screen presence, and I, I really hope she can get a lot more work. Um, just have an incidentally deaf lead. It's fine. Yeah, please. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it, it was great to see her, uh, there's some great cameos near the end of the movie where of course there's like an, uh, islands where people are hanging out and all of, yeah. a lot of we're it, gonna, there's, we're there's see a the cult, cult of, yeah. can, cult of cannibals. There's, you know, all the usual tropes oh, we see in a lot of, uh, post-apocalyptic movies. Mm. Uh, this kind of it really movie helps is, to be quiet cannibalism. Yeah. 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 Like, you know, shh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yum, 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 yum. <laughs> You're monsters. I know. Yeah. <laughs> The, the um, fun of this kind of movie is the mechanic. Yeah, that's just, the thing that I was always interesting about the first one, where it kind of just... Honestly, because I remember when the first Quiet Place came out, and it's a good movie, but it's, it's a gimmick movie. You know, mm. it's a it's a fun premise, and it makes it forces the filmmaker to deal with that premise in a very Hitchcockian rope sort of way. Yeah. Or Lifeboat, maybe, might be a more accurate example. Can I make a whole movie on a lifeboat? 
can I make a whole movie where any noise would mm. result in the end of the film? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I, I, but I remember he was struggling. I heard people str- like John Krasinski was talking about like, yeah, well, it's really about how, you know, we're forcing people to stay silent instead of mm. talking about like, no, no, you, there's no not. fucking it's, theme it's, to your it's movie. It's just at all. about how, how do you, what are the rules and how do you traverse them? I uh, think the he weirdest... comes up with a few interesting new yeah. scenarios, but it's well, just scenario. What I remember being very impressed by, though, and I feel like this is all, I, I clearly, I think if he, this was his point, he would have articulated it. But I think what was kind of cool about it, and to me what the point of A Quiet Place ultimately is, is it trains audiences to stop talking in movies. <laughs> I remember watching A Quiet Place on opening night in a theater, and it wasn't a full theater, but it was a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's that usual hum of people talking like mm-hmm. during the crit trailers and stuff. I'm like, oh, we should see that. Or that looks like crap. Or, oh, did John find his seat? That kind of just mutual talking, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then as the movie started and they realized that this is not going to be a loud movie mm-hmm. and people are not talking and there's not a lot of music even. And people started just gradually but quickly shut up. Mm-hmm. And then after like five minutes, you heard like someone crinkle their candy and everything else went, shh. <laughs> and it just like forced the audience to appreciate oh. silence. And I think that was kind of cool in a meta way, but that's mm. about as far as I'm willing to go. Well, uh, I, I wish it had gone even further because there's a lot of thriller kind of music. There's, you know, a big score. There's going to be moments where they're in a bunker and they actually get to have conversations. How great if they just had an all silent movie mm-hmm. where there's no dialogue. It's all just action and everybody is as quiet as possible. And they try to to tell the story with just silent soundscapes. That would have been great. Yeah. No, no such luck. The monsters are kind of cool looking, I guess. Uh, They they got big, long spindly arms, which look really cool. Yeah. There's a, a trend in monster sound effects that I'm growing incredibly tired of. And it's the way they make monsters roar or growl in movies. Mm. There's a sort of kind of guttural noise that I hear Mm. in every monster movie now. Um, Oh yeah. That kind of noise. Um, it and it's do that predator noise off with off the head. It, it's so common that it's it's no longer scary or threatening. It's like, oh no, there you can hear the noises. Like, yeah, that's a movie sound effect out of it's like the Hanna Barbera drawer now. Just throw it away. You don't get to use those sound effects anymore. Yeah. Uh, so they're not entirely threatening these monsters, especially now that we know how to kill them. Well, the thing always bugged me about like I, I appreciated everything building up to the ending of A Quiet Place, and mm-hmm. then the ending I thought was actually kind of frustrating. Like, oh, what's the trick? To killing these monsters that are like that have really sensitive hearing, loud noises. Yeah, no one ever occurred. It never occurred to anyone to do that. Really? <laughs> no one. No one tried throwing a grenade at them or something. Like nobody. Really? It's it's not just loud noises. It's a specific noise that comes from like a specialized device. But it's like but a dog whistle though. Like that's the it, idea though. It, it was like a hearing, high... it was her hearing aid. I appreciate yeah. that, but it's still a frequency. And it just mm. feels like if the whole thing with these aliens is their hearing, I mean maybe the aliens like killed all the noisy scientists first. <laughs> like all the radio yeah, all the radio enthusiasts were just killed clearly, off immediately. And these are clearly like animals. They're not like yeah. intelligent beings. Or if they are they don't display intelligence. Mm. They just oh. sort of chase and murder people. Maybe they're like gargans. 
<laughs> you know what I'm talking about in the movie Teenagers from, teenagers from Outer Space. Teenagers from Outer Space is about a bunch of really old-looking teenagers from outer space who come to Earth, and the idea is they're they're looking for a planet on which to raise a, a herd of gigantic monsters that they use for food. So it's basically mm. like looking for them, like oh, this will be a great grazing ground for our, for our monsters, Earth, mm. and uh, their monsters are gargans, and gargans are lobsters. They're big fucking lobsters. Uh, to, to their credit, they're lobsters superimposed over the action of the, the shot. So, so it they looks look, like they're giant. So it looks like they're kind oh, of big. Actually, it doesn't look like they're giant. It looks like somebody superimposed a lobster over the shot of it a looks, movie. It looks really bad. Oh, man. Every, the bowl of crayfish spilled over here. What happened? Uh, but like, wouldn't it be funny if it turned out that the aliens from A Quiet Place were just gargans? It was just That'd like, be great. Like that's we we they are yeah, yeah we just threw them on your planet. We don't care what they kill. We just we'll, we'll come back, have some gargan burgers, and we're we're yeah, good the, to go. Unfortunately, there's no expansion of what they are or what they do or where they came from. Well, that's we what a quiet place part three is for. Well, I mean, this if this one is making as much bank, then yeah, sure we can cynically say yes, we can expect a sequel, but. Uh, mm. I want to do I want, like a, I want I want more in the story. That would have been nice. I Maybe wanna, it would be about something. Well, there should be like a mockbuster called a loud place. <laughs> it's just everything's really loud. If you don't stop screaming, then the aliens attack. That's AKA Twitter. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Well played. Well played indeed. All right. So, well. Th- is there anything but else this, left to say about A Quiet Place? Uh, it, this was my first film back in a theater since February of 2020. So that yeah. was, was it a mind-blowing experience? No, it was exactly the same. <laughs> uh, this, this may be an odd comment, but like I wasn't gone so long that I missed it, like that I had forgotten about parts of the film-going experience. Yeah. Well, but, it, helps, it helps that we go to movie theaters Constantly. Yeah, pretty like, constantly. The, yeah. Se- the scent of the AMC in Century City has not changed one whit. That sort of... That's a little disappointing, actually. You would think you would have taken the opportunity to like clean it up Like steam the carpets or something? Yeah, that, that sort of like <laughs> po- popcorn slash garbage smell that you yeah. get in, in movie theaters. The, just, a, uh, just a hint of pine salt, so you know they tried. They tried a little bit. <laughs> the, the Coke syrup that's been stomped into the ground and will never go away, even, even as thousands of years pass. Yeah. Uh, I, I worked in a movie theater. The scent of that polyester vest will never leave me. It's sort of permeating the air in the movie theater. It's still too damn many previews before the movie. It's like 30-minute pre-show. Well, it's AMC. Of course it is. Yeah. 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 Uh, and this part was really sad. It says, thanks for coming back to the movies. We're celebrating our 100th year last year in 2020. Oh, <laughs> Like, they show no. this thing. It's like, yeah, it's 1920 to 2020. Hundred years, <laughs> damn it! Can we get a mulligan on that? Can we get a, we all get a mulligan on twenty twenty. Okay, one hundred one. It's hundred one now. Hundred one's still, still cool. Ooh, that's a good segue. <laughs> From hundred and one years to hundred and one Dalmatians, the prequel. So it's two. <laughs> it's like two that's, Dalmatians. There's, there's three Dalmatians. Oh, there are three Dalmatians. Yeah. I apologize. There are three. And then we don't, we don't find out what happened to the third one. <laughs> the, the fate of there are three Dalmatians in this well, they, movie. They got the fate of one movie. of them is unclear. <laughs> um, okay, so 101 Dalmatians uh, is weirdly, and I and I don't mean this in a bad way. It's just if you would ask me, like if you would just for inflation, like what are the what's the most like successful Disney movie? Like 101 Dalmatians is I think at least in like the top two. 
Like it's mm-hmm. a, it's incredibly like that, financially that, that successful. And like the Lion King. Like and no, it. no. Like hold on. If you adjust for inflation, I think it's that and Snow White. Oh, that makes more sense. Uh, but uh, hold on a second. Just uh, okay. But 101 Dalmatians was a huge hit. I yeah. saw 101 Dalmatians for the first time this year. Uh, this year. Yeah, I, I had not. I had not watched 101 Dalmatians. Mm. It is of an incredibly slight movie. Mm. I'm kind of surprised that it, it's considered like sort of one of the bigger ones because yeah. it feels very lesser. To me. Uh, th- I'm looking at the adjusted uh, uh, for inflation box office mm. grosses. Uh, the top ten adjusted for inflation. Now, what adjusted for inflation means? If we don't know what we're talking about. Uh, ticket prices have not stayed the same. Boy, do I wish they had. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, you imagine seeing two they, movies for a nickel? It'd be t- great. They take the grosses of a film made in 1961 and adjust the cost of a yeah. dollar in 1961. Yeah. What it is in Bas- basically, the idea is what we're looking at isn't necessarily how much they made, but how many tickets were sold. That's mm-hmm. what it boils down to. So if tickets cost as much today as they did when, say, The Ten Commandments came out, mm-hmm. then domestically, only domestically, international records are a little spottier the further back you go. Only domestically, The Ten Commandments made almost $1.2 billion domestically. <laughs> That's how many people saw it. Mm-hmm. So when you think about like how popular Star Wars or Avatar were, like only in domestically, Ten Commandments. The top 10 highest grossing movies of all time adjusted for inflation, again, domestically, United States. Number one, I'm sorry about this, Gone with the Wind. Number two, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. Number three, The Sound of Music. Uh-huh. Not Marvel, not Sound of Music, number three. Number four, E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Mm. Number five, James Cameron's Titanic. Number six, The Ten Commandments. Number seven, Jaws. Okay. Someone once asked me, like, oh, well, name, name a horror movie that ever made more than a billion dollars. Jaws. <laughs> if you're just for inflation, <laughs> and you actually look at, like, what counts. Mm. Uh, number eight. Here's a film that no one talks about anymore as a giant blockbuster, but it was Dr. Zhivago. That's right. Made over a billion dollars if you adjust for inflation. Big, big sweeping romances were big business. Uh, the last film that if you adjust for inflation would have grossed over a billion dollars domestically. Number nine, The Exorcist. Hey, hey. Number 10, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Number 11, Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens. And number 12, mm. 101 Dalmatians, the original animated wow. version. That's, that is ahead of The Empire Strikes Back. That is ahead of Ben-Hur. That is ahead of Avatar and <laughs> Avengers Endgame. That's ahead of Jurassic Park. Holy shit, that was a popular movie. Now, granted, uh, th- we're talking about re-releases, too, I was about but to still. Say, I was about to say, Disney was still. really good about re-releasing their films. Come see the Disney magic mm-hmm. again, and that adds to the, the grosses as well. But it still shows um, a lot of interest and a lot of popularity. Yeah. Uh, so, and a lot of this, you know... There are also extenuating circumstances. Maybe this was one that they had more widely available. Maybe it took mm. more prints for whatever reason. Yeah, whatever the reason, 101 Dalmatians is one of the highest grossing films of all time. Um, and and like I said, uh, it's I don't quite understand that because like Snow White is kind of a big movie. It's, yeah. uh, 
this gigantic animated feature mm-hmm. uh, before the animated features were super common. Yeah, uh, it's it not was, the first. Don't believe Disney's lies. No, but it was no, one no. of the. It was like the first like really big prominent one that got that huge. Yeah, it, it's, push. Um, yeah. it got a special Academy Award and seven small Academy Awards. That's um, really cool. Yeah, actually. you can That's actually fun. look up the pictures. They made like little mini Oscars. The, the Oscars don't do it. that anymore. It's a shame. Um, I wonder where those are. They're probably in a Disney sure vault Disney, somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 101 Dalmatians came out in 1961, and it's a movie about dogs watching television. Uh, it's Okay, it's it's about a, a songwriter uh, whose dog feels that he's not getting, uh, he's too much of a bachelor and he needs, uh, he needs a girlfriend slash wife. So the dog, uh, named Pongo. Pongo, in voiceover, uh, first in voiceover and then he actually speaks to other dogs, um, takes him out on a walk he meets uh, a lady in the park she also has a dalmatian and her name is perdita perdita the is the, the dalmatian anita is the the, the human woman mm. and they move in together and everything's uh, pa- great pongo and perdita have a litter of puppies and there's a big dramatic scene where she uh, she's giving birth to puppies and she doesn't give birth to 101 but she gives no. birth to like what like 20 or something it's like 15 i think it's like a lot yeah, yeah um, it is a lot she gives birth to a large litter of puppies a uh, big dramatic moment one looks like it's dead but it's not um uh-huh. they stole that from batteries not included <laughs> a movie a movie that was made 25 years later of course yeah, they're very clever uh, <laughs> Uh, and then there's a huge long segment of the movie where the dogs just watch TV. They're just chilling out They're being dogs. They're just chilling out. Wow, look, there's TV and it's like a Rin Tin Tin type show. Yeah. It's a dog show. Yeah. Um, uh, early in the movie, they got a visit from a character named Cruella DeVille, who uh, loves furs and smokes cigarettes and is a little bit overbearing. And she's so overbearing that Roger writes a song about her. About how much she's an awful human being. She's a, it's, it's not as good a diss track as You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch, but it's a good one. Yeah. But what always bothered me about that scene mm-hmm. is that we know in the audience, because at least we've seen the trailer, mm-hmm. that Grill DeVille is going to kidnap those puppies and try to turn them into clothes. Mm. They don't know that. They just know that she's like a friend of Anita who like smokes too much, which is to say it all, but you know what I mean, who like smokes annoyingly grotesquely yeah. a lot and the, the is, color cigarette smoke green yeah. in the movie so it's like her his his pipe and his cigar or his cigarettes don't because Roger, God, smoke, he smokes. Roger smokes as well oh, then but he him. smokes gray smoke yeah, and so Cruella's fine. smoke is green yeah gray so, smoke yeah. is healthy says Disney <laughs> uh, but uh, but like so Disney, but like Walt, Dis- Walt Disney smoked like a chimney by the way that's, and, and, yeah. and he died uh, but uh, Cruella DeVille uh, is overbearing mm. and that's it so basically, he writes a hate song about the only friend we know for a fact his wife has. <laughs> That's the only friend we know she has. And it's also, near as we can tell, they're the only friends Cruella DeVille has. Mm. And they write horrible hate music about her. And a part of me is a little bit on Cruella DeVille's side right mm. at the beginning because, yeah, she's been through terrible things. But clearly, she doesn't have like a, a social safety net or anything of people like looking out for her. Mm. I feel bad for her. Yeah. Um, Cruella DeVille is, she's into fur, which yeah. was very common in the 1960s. Um, for, for a long time. Actually. I mean, there have always been people who protested wearing fur, mm-hmm. but fur was actually a, a very common and widespread status symbol in the United States throughout the, from I think it was the, the 80s maybe, people start, started to fall out of fashion, right? Yeah, like start, starting from maybe around the 1920s until, yeah, around the 80s when people started saying, it just sort of, yeah, yeah. Stop, stop being a thing. Or people were getting faux fur and that was more acceptable. Yeah. But the idea of actually, actually having like a mink coat was a status symbol. 
so she's obsessed with that status. She wants fur. She wants dog fur, spotted dog fur. So she's going to kidnap uh, uh, Anita's puppies and skin them and make them into a coat. But evidently she needs a whole lot of them. I don't know how big a coat she's going to make, but she needs mm. a lot of really soft puppy fur. So she has a house, like this dilapidated mansion uh. full of puppies she's kidnapped. Yeah, not just the hero puppies that we know, mm. but like it's like 101 a, a, of them. Also now. a bunch of other ones. Who yeah. knows? I don't know where they came from, but yeah. she just has them. And there's 101 in all, hence the title. And the movie is, from then on, then on is about how Pongo and Perdita have to enlist essentially the the dog police <laughs> where are you coming from dog police nobody knows where you are uh and <laughs> are you excited for the paw patrol movie it's coming out this year you know my son's over paw patrol really that's yeah, good he's, okay. he's six already and that's like a just like, out of the range of paw patrol dad i'm grown up now i'm not watching paw patrol uh, but you know what we had we just replaced his paw patrol sheets today <sighs> Oh, it's like what a, a rite of passage. Oh, he, wow. out, he outgrew the Paw Patrol what's it, sheets. What's he, what's he moved on and to? Super Mario now. He has oh, Super Mario funny. sheets. Right. Super Mario, Super Mario oh. will always be popular. Yeah, Super Mario, I feel, I mean, nowadays adults buy yeah. Super Mario sheets. Yeah. Uh, but, just, uh, just uh, 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 you know, chubby, heroic Italian guys. Like, it's not, <laughs> there aren't a lot of us, but I'm glad that one yeah. of them is like just a permanent part of the public consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> just a... A, a, a heroic hero who defeats dragons. He's just a chubby little dude. Yeah, love him. Um, so yeah, the, then there's a, a whole rescue and there's this long, prolonged sequence where they're just, the dogs are trudging through the snow away from yeah. Cruella DeVille's mansion well, yeah, so they don't get skinned. It's, it's like hard. Like it's, it's mm. a chase movie basically once yeah, it gets going. Yeah. They, um, they disguise themselves in ashes. They get home and that's kind of it. Cruella yeah. DeVille crashes her car and that's the last we see of her. Yeah. Um, uh, over the years, the myth of Cruella DeVille seems to have grown mm-hmm. to the point where she was featured in uh, some live action remakes of 101 Dalmatians in 96 and I think 98 or 99. Yeah, I want to say it was um, like 2000 or something, but it was played, yeah. she was played by Glenn Close. And if you haven't seen those live action movies, the movies themselves are okay. Like, they're okay. Glenn Close is amazing. <laughs> like, I remember when 101 Dalmatians came out, the live action remake. There was legit Oscar buzz around Glenn Close. People were actually saying she deserves an Academy Award nomination for being so otherworldly good <laughs> as Cruella DeVille. And I rewatched them not that long ago, like a couple of years ago. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> yeah. Those are fun films, but, uh, especially the first one. Those are fun. But uh, the, the myth has only grown since then. Yeah. To the point where Cruella DeVille, like her... Her uh, Cruella Deville had a daughter in that show th- or show or movie, whatever it was the, the Descendants. Descendants. I think it was a show yeah. where uh, which posits a world where all of Disney features coexist, yeah. and all of the villains are about the same age and had children around the same time, and now they all are going to the same high school together. There was also a version of Cruella in that show. I think it was called Once or Once Upon a Time. Oh, but it was, that yeah, was also yeah. another one so, where all the Disney versions yeah, of those so things were the, real. The, this overbearing character who smokes too much and wants to make a puppy coat is mm. now like this. Villain for the ages, uh, well, I, to the point where uh, now she's been swept up in this big Disney remake machine that has been really in vogue for the last uh, f- four or five years. Well, I think Cruella DeVille, and I, I actually like Cruella DeVille as a character, fine, especially as a villain. Hmm. Um, because the thing with Disney is that they didn't have a lot of really forceful female characters for a while there. And so a character like Maleficent or or Cruella there's like evil queens and evil and, queens. Yeah, that's what that, a lot of them were villains. That's my mm-hmm. point. 
A lot of them were trained as villains, hmm. um, and a lot but, of like the like heroic, <laughs> well, and a lot of the heroic women were, you know, maybe a little w- less wilting flowers. Well, you know, I don't know about wilting flowers, but you know, Alice in Wonderland is really that proactive a protagonist. Uh, Cinderella is, uh, you know, a, not the kind of heroine I think a lot of people would want to see now. Um, but uh, characters like Maleficent and Cruella are. They're go-getters, aren't they? They're entrepreneurs. Mm. They they have strong opinions about things. They have uh, audacious mm. fashion choices. Um, they're they they're standout characters, mm. I think, and uh, I think that's I like, why uh, they linger and endure, even mm. though they're evil. They're cool, yeah. you know. Mm. And I think it's it's a it's a sad state of affairs when, for too long, women in these types of stories had two options: you could either be the, a damsel the, the distress or the, the villain. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, who wouldn't pick the villain in that scenario? Um, so I think I think she has a, right. I think she has an allure. Is my point? Okay. Um, I, I I get it. I get the allure. I just don't get sort of the in- inflation of her. Oh, but there's a lot I don't understand about the way popular culture functions. Why are you listening to me? Because uh, <laughs> you're an outsider opinion, and that makes it interesting. <laughs> I, I suppose so. There's an old uh, um, gag from Taxi mm. where uh, 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 Andy Kaufman had a line. Uh, uh, what's your opinion of the human race? I want an outsider's take. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, Cruella DeVille now is, is now getting uh, more or less the Joker treatment. We get yeah. to see her origins, how she came to be, how she came to be so villainous. And uh, this film, uh, directed by Craig Gillespie, takes place uh, largely in London in the 1970s. Although uh, we do get to see Cruella DeVille... Um, as a young girl, as she's being raised by a single mother, how uh, she had difficult times in school, and she was a, born with her white and black hair. Yeah, which she I has half it. white, half black hair, just sort yeah. of as, as naturally grew. Uh, and we get to see a rather tragic incident in her childhood when her mom was going to ask a rich person for a, a little bit of a handout to help her raise Corella, who was having trouble in school, and. Uh, Due to a twist of fate, a pack of Dalmatians chased her mother off of a cliff and killed her. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's I'm sorry. really stupid. I'm sorry. This, this scene has been making the rounds on Twitter, yeah. like just the sort of in a vacuum this moment. And there's two types of reactions to it that I've seen. One is, that's ridiculous. The other one is, well, you have to watch the whole thing in context. I've seen the whole thing in context. It's, it's ridiculous. It's still ridiculous. It's yeah. very, very clear that this scene did not evolve organically out of a screenplay. Mm. This scene exists in order to justify something we never needed to justify. It, it, yeah, it we turns, never needed to. All, all of these things, like the, this is clearly a um, film made by people who have watched 101 Dalmatians a lot and have memorized the details. I feel the way about that way about like like the the Han Solo movie. Yeah. It's like all these little tiny details that you'll only notice if you watch Star Wars a hundred times mm-hmm. are now very significant uh, parts of the Han Solo story. Yeah. Like how he got his gun. Um, the, he has like a pair of dice hanging from his mirror. It's like we get to know where those things they only, like We don't care. They only made these that are, a thing yeah. in the new prequel, in the new movies anyway. That wasn't even in the original movies. Yeah, they so, made that up so that they could retroactively put it in Han Solo oh as if God. it meant something. So all of these little tiny details are now given setup in, yeah. in this unbelievably long film about the, the rise of Cruella de Vil. Now, there is a fun bit of story here where Cruella DeVille uh, become, she aspires, she's always been interested in fashion and she aspires to become fashion designer. So she takes a job with the Baroness played by the wonderful Emma Thompson. Uh, Cruella DeVille as an adult is played by Emma Stone. 
and uh, she uh, feels that this is sort of like her ticket to stardom. She gets to work for this high-end high fashion designer. How she comes to work for the fashion designer is a whole thing. How and she it takes comes forever. To, how she also, comes to, that plot uh, point ripped uh, off from the movie Mannequin. It definitely was. Yeah, they clearly <laughs> saw the movie. I'm not complaining, uh, but let's be fair here. Mm. Someone in the, who's made that movie loves the movie Mannequin. Good for them. <laughs> there's also a there's a, a pair of like uh, criminal thugs in 101 Dalmatians. It turns out they were like her her um, childhood uh, roommates. Yeah, like well, they were like uh, Oliver Twist uh, yeah. thieving buddies. Like they lived yeah. in an attic and they stole stuff boxes and hankies. Yeah, uh, they. Uh, so there's also a bit of story introducing them and their growing up and everything they do together. Um, how she befriended the local thrift shop owner. All of these things are just sort of padding things out to get to the actual story, uh, which is actually a very brief part of this movie. <laughs> this very long movie. Yeah. I was I was watching this movie and I thought everything was wrapping up and I checked out just to see how much longer it was. Mm. An hour. Mm. I'm like, what what's left? And the mm. answer is a lot of padding. A lot of this movie is music. And that's not a bad thing per se, obviously. But Mm. so much of this movie is attempting to be told through a soundtrack that they sometimes just (sighs) let scenes run forever just to get more of the soundtrack in. And it's wall to wall. Now, I'll say this about the soundtrack. A lot of little kids who don't know anything about 70s rock Mm. are going to get some good tunes on the soundtrack, and they're going to want to buy the soundtrack and listen to the soundtrack. That's good. Introduced to these things for the first time. In a vacuum, Um, that's good. The problem is, is, it's all punk rock stuff, Mm. and this is the least punk rock movie ever. Well, I... It's it's punk rock. It's new wave. It's stuff that was like really hip in in seventies uh, London, ostensibly. But like that was like a rebellious mm. sort of anti-establishment sound. Yeah. And this movie is incredibly establishment. Even Corella herself, even though she ends up in this sort of rivalry that escalates and escalates and escalates with the Baroness. What does she want? Mainstream popularity and mm. financial success. That's what she wants. That's the theme of the movie. Uh, yeah. It's also put out by Disney. And when it, when Disney is putting the clashes, should I stay or should I go under their soundtrack, trying yeah. to get some uh, like punk cred, that's like that, that's like a dad saying, I'm cool too, kids. Oh. Here's what real music sounds like. It, it's not, it's grasping for punk cred, mm-hmm. but it is brazenly and cynically commercial well, and it's, in its construct and in its themes. I know. Well, and, and what's weird is that sometimes they just get the song completely wrong. Like one mm-hmm. thing that really bits me off was um, the introduction where we first see for the first time in all of her glory, mm-hmm. Emma Thompson, who was really good in this movie. Mm-hmm. She's she good in, in everything. She comes into the doors. She comes into the doors and the, she comes into the doors song five to one. It's a, it's got a pumping like theme to it. It's a good, it sounds like a good villain song. Uh, and it's like it's introduced as like her theme. the The song Five to One is about how the young now outnumber the old, <laughs> five to one, and 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 they're gonna take over. So this should be Cruella's song, not the Baroness's song. Mm. It's the exact opposite here. And it's just I mean, not that that's like a killer or anything like that, like that ruins the movie. But to me, that's very emblematic of just how little thought went into this other than this sounds cool on a soundtrack. And how we're taking all of these punk aesthetics, whether it's the music or the fashion design or Mm. uh, really any artistic element of this movie that harkens back to that. And we're just crassly, superficially 
ladling it onto this as a way to sell you things rather than any respect. And this is a movie about art. This is a movie about two artists mm. fighting for supremacy. One artist who's been doing it for forever and is very formal, and another artist who is trying to do something bold and exciting and new, and yet it feels so thin and superficial. <laughs> it's uh, so crap. You could make, uh, well, you could, if you're being very generous, uh, make the same argument about Cruella that you could about The Neon Demon, uh, which is another mm. another film about fashion and uh Fashion and modeling and the modeling a world. Great double feature. Yeah, well, I, I'm and, not a fan of Cruella, but that'd be a cool double uh, feature. And I am a fan of the Neon Demon, and I think it's not for reasons that Nicholas Winding Refn wants me to be. Agreed. Because uh, that is a film about how ho- how hollow the fashion industry is, man. It's all just empty spectacle, and it's supposed to be really kind of a condemnation when it itself is empty spectacle, yeah. which actually helps the theme in a way that I think the film didn't intend. Yeah, no, it's actually uh, kind of perfect. And there's, it's, it's completely clueless about itself. And I love that. There's none of that serendipitous cluelessness about Cruella. Everything feels orchestrated in Cruella. It's completely contrived. Yeah. Everything from the dogs killing mm. Cruella's mom to really just the entire plot mm. is just all about Eve with a little devil wears Prada and a little mannequin. And like, boom, you mm. got it. And oh, no. And uh, right at the end, a little Thomas Crown Affair remake, which I thought was really random and didn't end up going anywhere. Um, well, and when we finally get to the end where we're it's going to start syncing up with the events of 101 Dalmatians. Yeah, a maybe sli- a, a little s- a slight movie about dogs that watch TV. We went through all of this two hour and 15 minute movie where we're rip- we were having velvet goldmine like productions of I want to be your dog, which, oh, my God, really? Iggy Pop, uh, if Iggy Pop were dead, he'd be rolling over in his grave. <laughs> I mean, Iggy Pop must have signed off on it on some have. level. Or actually, you don't have to ask the artist. You just Not necessarily. The well, label. It depends on the rules, but, but it yeah. depends on, on how your contract works out. But, but typically, you only have to ask the label uh, yeah. if you're going to use something on a soundtrack. And yeah. if there was a big objection, Iggy Pop would have put, put up a stink. He probably didn't care. Yeah. Uh, wouldn't it be great if Iggy Pop had, had shown up in this movie? That would have been cool. As the Baroness. Yes! Oh my god, <laughs> yes! Just Iggy Pop as the Baroness. He's a pretty good actor, actually. He doesn't do it often, but whenever he acts, he's always He's, he's okay. Fine. He's he old the movie. I, I like to see him and stuff. Yeah. And he played uh, he played a Vorta in Deep Space Nine. I don't remember that at all. Yeah, he was, he was on uh, he was he was on Deep Space Nine. Played one I of remember, the founders. I remember as being or the not, absolute the founders were the changelings. He was the absolute best part of the Crow City of Angels. <laughs> like he actually brought humanity yeah. into that film. I, I have a recording of Iggy Pop reading the Telltale Heart. Ooh, it's really great. That's cool. True, nervous, very very dreadfully nervous. I had been <laughs> and am. That's it's just the coolest thing. Uh. Anyway, but af- after all of this, this gigantic rigmarole, this very long movie about you know, missing lockets and lost lineage and all yeah. of these big stupid twists, yeah. art is an aristocratic right. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's and that's a big that's, theme that's of a, it. That's is, a yeah, shitty theme. That was a big part of the Beauty and the Beast remake too. You're yeah. you're not just a smart person from a small town. You're actually from a big city, and your your, your intelligence is like. This yeah. birthright. Yeah, all, uh, all of your finest qualities are a birthright. Thanks, mm. Disney. That's oh. a great message for everybody. Uh, it, it lines up with, like, tr- trying to set up the opening scenes of 101 Dalmatians, which, if you recall, was a guy sitting in an apartment writing songs with a dog sitting next to him. Like, there's nothing big and romantic about the events of 101 Dalmatians that all of this should lead to. Yeah, and I'm going to throw it out there. Mm. Um, it doesn't track. 
Like without going no. into, without going into great details, like if you're actually like thinking, oh, this is leading to 101 Dalmatians, mm-hmm. then it makes no sense whatsoever. 101 Dalmatians couldn't possibly play out the way it does. I remember I interviewed uh, the writer of Alice in Wonderland and Maleficent. Okay. And that is um, Linda Tim Wolverton. Burton, Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. Right. And um, Richard, I think Richard Stromberg did uh, mm. Maleficent. Um, anyway. Um, but uh, one of the things that Maleficent was, and this is in like the opening narration, which is uh, you've heard, you know, you've heard the story of Sleeping Beauty, but here's the version, here's what really happened. Here's the version you haven't heard. And I remember uh, asking Linda Wolverton, like, well, how did we hear the wrong version? Because at the end of the movie, everyone kind of knows cut, the pretty, true version. Pretty yeah. much agrees on what actually happened. And. It was basically just we didn't really think about it. It's not really important to us. Uh, and then, in, and then, <laughs> and then, it's a little meta moment. They're talking yeah. to the modern audience. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you've seen but, the Sleeping Beauty. But my but, point yeah. is this: it's you're thinking about you're thinking about everything. Really, you're mm. you're retroactively inserting plot mm. that can pay off in another movie. Yeah. It it's weird to me sometimes when they don't think that out. Like Cruella, might I don't think it works as its own story. I don't think mm. it's a good movie. But like. If it did, it just couldn't possibly lead to 101 Dalmatians as we knew it. Mm. It would have which, to lead to a different version of 101 Dalmatians. And like, I guess that's in, 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 not inherently a horrible thing, but it's confusing to us because literally the only reason this movie exists mm. is as a prelude to this previous film that is enormously successful that we know. Mm. So the fact that the actual connective tissue between Cruella and 101 Dalmatians, either the animated version or the live-action version or any version that we know, doesn't connect, doesn't yeah, track... Yeah. Is it would be like if like we had like a prequel to Scream, and it ended with like someone sending Nev Campbell like the Scream mask in the mail, mm. and her like getting the mail like oh it's a Scream mask, and that's the ending, and you're like what the fuck does that have to do with anything? That's what happens. <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've noticed the a big part. This is not fully the the reason that Disney is sort of milking their uh, old animated properties, but. I mean, they've they've always done it. So yeah. it's just the new version of it. Yeah, uh, a lot of these remakes uh, tend to exist to address not a, a problem with the story or a problem with the characters or some mystery that was was left unsolved from the movies, but to address criticism of those films uh, from the outside world mm-hmm. that has come up in the interim. Here's why this movie mm-hmm. might not play as well today because this right. is what we talk about. So yeah. We're going to remake Aladdin and we're going to cast a lot of non-white actors in yeah. an Arabian story. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, that's the, it's the best part uh, of the Lion King remake is that the cast isn't a uh, bunch of white people. Yeah. Like, there's yeah. a lot of white people in the cast. There isn't yeah. a Lion King in a movie that takes place entirely in Africa. Uh, the original Lion King. The new Lion King one, not so much. Yeah. Uh, but, but you... Uh, it's worse than something like Beauty and the Beast, where they're trying they're trying so hard to cover for all these criticisms of the 1991 film yeah. that the story loses all of its power. Yeah. They try to make the villains a little bit too sympathetic. Well, here's how why they really act this way. Here's why Belle was really in this position. Mm-hmm. Here's uh, a criticism that she uh, is suffering from Stockholm syndrome. Well, we're going to add a few more plot elements so it actually seems a little bit more natural. But in so doing, they're actually introducing new problems into the story about yeah. how uh, all of these people in the castle are also to blame for this guy who's actually not so bad. So what are we yeah. actually saying for uh, in these new remakes? And I feel like 
what we're addressing here is something you said about Cruella DeVille is that she actually seems like a character that has a lot of agency, but she's clearly her function is a villain. Yeah. And I would argue that if you're going to present a villain, it's okay for them to just be villainous. Yeah. We don't need sympathy for that character. In fact, they have a lot more dramatic power as forces of evil. Yeah. And they're a lot more interesting if we don't know their backstory. Yeah. Now, you again, you're Disney. You don't have to make them kill people. You know, mm-hmm. you can pull back that far. But, like, if this had just been all about Eve in the fashion world in the 70s mm-hmm. and you just ignored all the other shit and it was just about... Because here's the thing with Cruella DeVille. Near as I could tell, self-made person. Mm-hmm. Okay? She had talent. She had drive. She had personality. And she pushed her way to the top. And I can respect that. Uh, the way that they've concocted this weird legacy narrative for her mm. uh, really takes a lot of that away from her, actually. And I think that's bullshit. I think if you had just done, okay, here's how Cruella DeVille became the top fashion designer in the world. Mm. That's enough. <laughs> I don't need all the bullshit with the Dalmatians. I don't mm. need all the bullshit with the mystery of her mom and all this. I don't need that. It can just be about the fashion industry. That's interesting enough. That's a weird world. There's a lot of interesting characters that come out of that world. You can totally do that. Why do we need all this other stuff? Oh, and also, at the end of it, like, you could just, that if you just want to build up to it, she's, like, sitting on her throne. She's just taken over the fashion industry. And some just someone asks her, her reporter friend, like, whatever. It's like, uh, okay, well, what are you going to do for your next line? I'm thinking... Spots. Spots. I think it's spots. Spots is the new black. Yeah, whatever. Done. And then and then if you want to be cute, and I think it would work better than it does in the context of the movie, then you play I Wanna Be Your Dog. There you go. Just over the credits. It's just a setup of a cute little joke at the end. It's like at the end of of, uh, John Favreau's Iron Man. Yeah. Only at the end did they play Iron Man. (laughs) I am Iron Man. No, look, it's not it's not my job to say how the movie should have been made. But when I'm spending a lot of time thinking about how this movie could be better, it's indicative of the, that the movie that I'm watching isn't working for me. Yeah. And a lot of things about this movie doesn't work. I think this movie desperately tries to coast on... It's not camp because it's potential. It tries to coast on kitsch. It tries mm. to uh, uh, coast it's, it's on... it's not on, even high kitsch. No. It's just sort of like a little drop of kitsch. It's like a- Emma Stone is going to like overact a bit. Emma Thompson is going to be Emma Thompson, so she's fine. We don't need to worry about Emma Thompson. She'll do, any, she'll, <laughs> she'll, she'll do anything. She was even good in Saving Mr. Banks, a wretched and evil film. Uh, <laughs> which, I'm not going to go down that rabbit a hole. loathsome again. picture. But yeah. yeah, but she's good in it. You know, mm-hmm. like So she's she's a brilliant, brilliant actor. These are two brilliant actors. And, and honestly, the supporting cast is really good. Paul Walter House is really good in this. Like, there's, there's good people in this. Mm-hmm. But it seems like it's just trying to coast on retro kitsch we're trying to like sell children 70s music we're trying to sell children Cruella Deville wigs which I'm sure will be everywhere come Halloween and it's just ultimately feels cynical and pointless when you really could have done something you really could have done something that didn't feel this contrived you could have just done a story about how Cruella Deville became a big fashion designer Mm. it did not need to be this contrived For a movie that's set in the in London in the seventies in the fashion industry, they at least went the full mile with the costumes. The costumes are cool. The costumes are, yeah. are pretty cool looking. I, I, I did like her garbage gown. It turns out that's uh, actually. Um, I, I hope they got permission from it, but it turns out that's actually a gown that was uh, part of like a, a sculpture uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, thing. If you look up like garbage 
no, uh, okay. a long skirt gown or something like that. Mm-hmm. You can find it on Google. I forget who did it. Uh, but that was like someone did that like 10 years ago. Yeah. So I'm hoping they give them credit, at least yeah, the thank you and the credits for that. Because, yeah, yeah it bugs me when they... It, they're practically to... taking credit for the whole punk movement. And I'm like, yeah. Disney, you don't get to do that. It needed to be shorter. It needed to be yeah. messier. Uh, it needed to be gayer, quite frankly. Yeah. I, I was getting like whiffs of Velvet Goldmine and they were too tantalizing. Like, well, now I just want to go watch Velvet Goldmine. Yeah. There's, there is a character that Disney has once again said, oh, it's our first openly gay character. Mm. Are we going to talk about that? Nope. nope. Is there, is, 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 there, is, is, it's a pretty openly queer character, yes. But there's it's also not in dialogue, so they still have plausible deniability. Yeah, you could just I've, if they want to just I, cut I'm, those scenes out. That character lifts out of the movie completely. I'm you good, do not I'm need going, that character on screen in un, order to tell the story. Until they mention it in dialogue expressly and openly multiple times throughout the film. Yeah, to the extent that then, you can't edit it out of the movie without I will I will give Disney you know, no credit. No. <laughs> not it's yeah. very superficial attempt to gain credibility for doing the absolute look, least look, of look representation. This character we made up and is very minor and we don't ever explicitly mm-hmm. mention their sexuality. Mm-hmm. Are, aren't we progressive? Yeah. Why, why can't Cruella be queer? Yeah, why She's not? She's definitely got the vibes. Like, uh, in fact, I, when I was watching 101 Dalmatians, we we were all coming up with the backstory. Oh, it turns out that she and Anita were lovers in college. And, I buy and, uh, it. Yeah, so no, not, nothing like that. Yeah. It's not make, a good film. Make anyway. your main character gay. I dare you. Dare you. I, da- I double dog dare you. Ooh, that'd be a great name for Quella 2. Quella 2, double, double dog dare. Give her a female lover Ooh. or get out of my face. Oh, who plays who plays her lover in the sequel? Oh, gosh. Well, the, the actress who played Anita. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah. I feel like they want to like go with the original story yeah. route there. She, she's kind of played this role before, but why not Gugu and Botha Raw? I just Ooh, love her. And, I love her in everything. I was thinking Betty Gilpin. <laughs> she's yeah. great. She was so yeah. fucking funny in The Hunt. Uh, she'd, she'd been a great Cruella, actually. Yeah. Anyway, uh, anyway, moving on. Uh-huh. We got to move on. Uh, we still have quite a few movies to review. Uh, do you want to talk about... I'll let you go next. Do All you right. want to talk about... Plan B or swimming out till the sea turns blue. Let's. Uh, let, uh, I'm going to be very brief on swimming out till the sea turns okay, blue. We'll um, this is the latest documentary film from a Chinese director named Jia Zhangke, mm. and Jia Zhangke uh, does documentaries and fictional features. And this is my first of their films. And I, I say I'm going to be brief on this because, unfortunately, I'm not knowledgeable enough about contemporary Chinese literature mm. to comment with any kind of cogency about this film. Okay. Uh, this is a documentary about, so the, it focuses on four well-known Chinese authors and three of them are alive. Uh, and, and uh, he gets them on camera. The three authors are Jia Pinghua, Yu Hua and Liang Hong. Uh, and I have read none of their work, and I'm yeah. not familiar with their work. And this film isn't a celebration of these authors, and it's not taking us through their timeline and establishing what they did to become famous. It's, it's just sort of didactic, it's yeah. just sort of accepted that these are well-known authors and that we should be familiar with their work. And they are talking about not their writing but they're growing up in a very in in a province in the same province in china okay and we talk to them and they tell stories about how they grew up and what was going on politically in china when they were younger and how they would mill grain and uh, we talk to you know siblings and family members one of them has a teenage son who's like oh well 
I guess, you know, this is my experience with, you know, my famous relative. And I, I, if I were more familiar with these authors, then I could say, I could speak a little bit more eloquently as to how their experience relates to the Chinese national character or Mm -hmm. the Chinese literary scene at large. Mm -hmm. Or at least their own work. Or or, yeah, Yeah. something about their work. But I, this is clearly a film made for a Chinese audience. Okay. Uh, it's it's made for people who are know a lot more about uh, Chinese history, this particular Chinese province, these authors, and what they wrote about and how they reflect on all of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I can get in the abstract from a film like this is how singular authors or singular works, uh, great works of literature, can indeed leave sort of these ripples throughout history and throughout society and how they do tend to alter culture, how these things are changing culture in these very subtle ways throughout. But the specifics eluded me and that was really frustrating. And that has nothing to do with the filmmaking. That just has to do with, I I will openly say it, my own ignorance. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> So what I'm going to say, instead of uh, giving this film sort of a glowing review or a damnation, I'm going to implore that our listeners, Mm. if we have any Chinese listeners or listeners who are um, interested in or know a lot about contemporary Chinese literature, if they know about any of these authors, Mm. to write in and tell me. Especially if you see the film. Like, that'd be great. If if you've seen the film, write in. tell Tell me what you know about these authors, what they mean to you, what they mean to China at large, if you know. Uh, or what your impression of them was, or even if you just read their book and thought it was okay. Yeah. Uh, I would love to hear something, but uh, this film is un- unfortunately not giving me any of that. And because I'm so yeah. ignorant, it feels opaque, even though it, it isn't. It's actually kind of unusual mm. that a film that is so steeped in something very specific mm. uh, and th- offers no invitation mm. to people who aren't already familiar with it to get a, a significant release hmm. in America sometimes. Like it's not, yeah, it's, yeah. it's oftentimes like the stuff that ends up in America is hmm. the stuff that they feel is most accessible hmm. to, to mainstream Americans. So this is actually kind of interesting that you got to take this incredible, like dive into the deep end. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm glad for it. And you know, now that I have you know, the, the experience watching yeah. this movie, I'm probably going to recognize some things. They do quote uh, some of their works uh, throughout this movie. Uh, in interesting narrative devices, they would have an actor come on the screen, read a passage from one of the novels, and then we'd get to see it in text on the screen, that same passage in text on the mm. screen. So we can kind of have a contemporary reading of it as well as just the raw language. Uh, I like that. That that was really great. Uh, and the film ends with the, you know, the teenage son just sort of trying to understanding that he needs to maybe connect with history and his own family and, and sort of the artistic legacy of the country a little bit more strongly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, please, please tell me, please write in, uh, <laughs> because, uh, it, it's, it's rare that I, I feel this much at a loss, like this much of an outsider when I'm coming into a movie. And, and again, that's nothing, nothing to say of what's going on in this film, which is pretty expertly crafted right. in terms of what is going through. It's chat. It's a, caught up into like 18 chapters. They all have different sort of themes about what the conversations are going to be. Some of them are pretty long. Some is like maybe just a couple of minutes. Uh, so I, I was able to follow who everybody was and what they were talking about, but I needed a little bit more historical context mm-hmm. to understand the significance of what I was saying. 
That's interesting because uh, uh, I'll just make a, a detour now into the documentary I saw this week, which is called Moby Doc, uh, which is about Moby. It's the story of uh, Moby, and Moby uh, narrates it. That, and, that is uh, the musician. The musician, yeah, mm-hmm. not not the whale. Um, and uh, it's about his his rise to fame, mm. uh, and it is about how fame and success and popularity have brought him no inner peace. Which is interesting until you realize that that's a lot of this. Mm. Um, Moby, uh, if you're not super familiar with him, uh, is uh, a he does he's mostly known for dance music. He's also dabbled in punk. Uh, he's worked with a lot of people: Gwen Stefani, David Bowie. Uh, his album "Play" uh, from 1999 I think it was, was a monster, was yeah. huge. And uh, in large part because every single track on that album was either released as a single or like licensed to a major movie or a car- or a commercial or something. Like it was just ubiquitous. D- Danny Boyle's movie The Beach, yeah, used uh, a Moby song called Porcelain, yeah, uh, which that was my entrance into Moby. I can't remember what was my was entrance the, was into the Moby. Beach. I think I heard some of his early stuff actually. I think he did he did like this. Um, dance remix uh, version of the Twin Peaks theme, which ended up catching the attention. <laughs> it caught some attention, and it ended up catching the attention of David Lynch, who appears in this documentary mm-hmm. uh, as someone who is talking about the greatness of Moby, and there's a bit where uh, they talk about how Moby spent some time when he was young uh, squatting, basically, in uh, a factory. It had free electricity, no running water or anything, and he just mm. stayed there and made music. And there's this bit where he's talking to David Lynch, and they're just talking about how they think old factories are cool. And David Lynch is like, yeah, old factories are amazing. You're the best, Moby. And I'm watching this and going, mm-hmm. <laughs> Moby Doc is, if you're interested in Moby's music... Uh, not just not uninteresting like it's certainly made with that interesting sort of uh remix methodology that he applies to a lot of his movies there's a lot of uh interesting juxtapositions of image and music and sound and tone and uh, home video footage and new interview footage and um sort of do-it-yourself uh recreations of stuff he has no footage for like there's a bit where he asks his friends uh, to uh, play the roles of his parents so that he can like relive some scenes from his childhood. And uh, there's this bit where really, like... Really his, self-serving, all It's right, incredibly yeah. self-serving. He does have a sense of humor about it, though. There's a bit where um, like his mom and his mom's like new boyfriend um, are like leaving him in a motel room. It's like, hey, we're going to go get drunk. We'll see you later. And then Moby's like, okay, that was good, but you're way too interested in Moby. Like you care <laughs> way too much about how he feels about you leaving. Like scale it back. Like, he clearly is working through some shit. And, and he's very frank about a lot of uh, his uh, struggles with uh, addiction, uh, his uh, a time where he came very close to killing himself, but he couldn't get a window open. Mm-hmm. So he ended up not doing it. Um, and I, I, I applaud him for, for being that frank about that stuff. There's also stuff that he doesn't talk about. <laughs> Like uh, one of the more notorious things about Moby in the recent years was uh, he did he did like a I think he wrote an autobiography or something, and uh, in it he talked about dating Natalie Portman, which Natalie Portman said they never did, and then uh. Moby insisted, and then Natalie Portman was like, "No, we never dated," and that was weird. I appreciate that Moby is very frank here about how fame 
is weird. Mm-hmm. It turns you into someone weird. And he talks about how he, even though he was giving interviews talking about how, you know, fame is not what I'm all about. He also talks about, I loved being famous. It was so cool. I lived next to Bowie and we were friends like that kind of shit. <laughs> and I can appreciate that. And I think that's kind of interesting to see someone who is willing to admit just how much of an alien Mm. Uh, uh, being rich and famous uh, can make you and to have everyone telling you your work is brilliant uh, yeah, can make yeah. you um, <clears throat> bless you but there is an unmistakable air of egocentrism here and not just because mm. it, Moby didn't direct this but it's clear he was a very important like creative force behind it he's like in every scene he's like it's not like someone is making some candid moby thing and they got one interview with moby like no moby is all over this thing mm-hmm. like, like one of the concluding scenes is moby talking to death like with the scythe and the cloak and everything like it's like oh my god yeah like when when you're gonna have a show about emily dickinson yeah. talking to death you can yeah, kind of get away with that. And she gets into a coach, and death is played played by, uh, I think it was Wiz Khalifa. Nice. Um, yeah, it, that makes sense. Yeah. No, this is this is when, Moby... When you're doing it yourself. Yeah. This is this is Moby working through some shit, and I can respect that. But it's it feels like you're reading an autobiography of a celebrity who's been a celebrity so long that they don't realize how weird their autobiography is, and they see all of this poetry and something everyone else is looking at and going, the fuck? <laughs> it's, it's kind of fascinating. It's, you know, I, I don't want to call it like a train wreck, but it is like watching someone do something they probably shouldn't be doing. Like, they certainly are too close to this material, I think. Um, and that's kind of just interesting to see them just... Go for it. Like, there was something undeniably fascinating about seeing someone just really gaze at a navel. Like, just look at that navel. <laughs> wow! Mm. And that's kind of... And I, was, I actually like Moby's music. There's, there's some good performances mm. of his music in this movie. There's a couple... It's not a concert film, but there's a few. And they're good. Um, but, um, yeah, it's a weird fucking film. And... It's, it's at the point where good or bad is kind of irrelevant. Mm-hmm. It's not about being good or bad. It's about Moby trying to convey this sense of who he is and this idea that the personal journey that he's went on has not just depth to him, but some kind of weird cosmic importance. And that's something mm-hmm. that I can't help but sort of innately reject. There's something that just feels false about that. Maybe not false. False might be the wrong word. But weirdly aggrandizing. And after a while, I didn't want to hang out with Moby. Mm. Is basically what it boiled down to. It seems like it wouldn't be fun to hang out with Moby that long. And I don't know if that's exactly what you're getting at with your Mm. documentary. Unless you're like really going like Moby was like saying like, here's why I'm terrible. Like that would be sad for Moby actually. But like, I guess I'm glad his, his ego is going strong. Hmm. I struggle with ego issues, so, like, cool, I guess. That must be nice, but, like, yeah. It's a weird fucking film. It's a weird fucking film. It's full of weird stylistic exercises. If you like Moby, it might be worth watching just so you get a better sense of, like, how he thinks about himself and his music and his career. Um, But if you don't like Moby, listen to play. <laughs> this is the play. It's it's a very commercial but very good album, and mm-hmm. um, it, it, he's done some other good stuff too. Yeah. 
Um, and that's that's it. Basically, I, I won't impugn play. Yeah, yeah, plays it's a it's overplayed. No one can argue. Is that the one where uh, the Jason Bourne theme comes from? Is that? Uh, uh, oh, I don't, uh, I don't remember. I, I don't remember what it was. Probably was. Um, anyway, uh, but that's Moby Duck, uh, and then we got two more films to talk about. Tell me about Plan B. Uh, Plan B uh, is the third film within a year about two teenage girls who have to go on a very long road trip in order to have access to either an abortion or birth control. Right. Uh, the first one was, re- uh, I guess the first one might have been Unpregnant, uh, mm-hmm. which was on uh, HBO Max last year. Uh, yeah. it was, they came out around the same time. The, that one and Never and, Rarely, Sometimes uh, never, Always. Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. It came out within um, like a month or two of each yeah, other. Yeah, those two were really close. And both of those films were about uh, going on a road trip to get an abortion. Uh, teenage girls going, in, in a pair of teenage girls specifically, uh, going on the road to get an abortion. Uh, it really, Rarely Never, Sometimes Always is, Rarely Sometimes... Never, rarely, sometimes, always, mm-hmm. uh, is a much more uh, kind of harrowing, realistic look at that and what it looks like and how difficult it is. Uh, there's a lot more natural scenes of just sort of uh, spending time with the two leads and watching their friendship grow and change and alter through scenes where they're just sort of hanging out together. Unpregnant is like a madcap comedy where they're you know, driving through barns and a lot of screaming. And uh, one of them is queer, so there's a big coming out scene, only I like the way they kind of undercut the coming out in that movie. Plan B is another Unpregnant. It is almost identical (laughs) to Unpregnant. Weird. So I guess all we really are going to have to go on is, well, before I get to the movie itself, I think this is indicative of uh, a, a, a trend where we're we're using cinema and in in two cases cinematic comedy mm. to very directly address how shitty the abortion situation is in this country. Yeah, it's a constitutional it's, yeah. right. Mm. Like the Supreme Court decided this many decades ago. Yeah, but, and these are films that are specifically designed to explore and reveal to people who especially if you didn't already know mm. Just how much red tape, just how much bureaucracy, just how many people how many, how are many... trying to stand in the way of mm. allowing people to have that right. Yeah. Yeah. So these uh, are inherently and, uh, political films, like deeply political films. Mm. So, yeah, this is a, a comedy film about uh, two young girls played by uh, wonderfully charming young actresses. And the the... The success of these movies is going to depend entirely on the charm and the chemistry between the actresses. Uh, uh, Kuho Verma plays the lead, and uh, Victoria Morales plays her best friend. They are uh, kind of the outsiders at their school. Uh, the uh, Victoria Morales character is sort of like uh, the, the the punk rocker that not a lot of people talk to, and Kuho Verma plays sort of like the, the star nerd student, and mm. nobody really talks to them. They throw a big party. Uh, uh, Kuhu Verma thinks that like her big, her crush is going to be there, and she's finally going to be able to maybe have some sort of sexual contact with this guy. She's really eager, uh, eager for it. But she, uh, in a, fate, a twist of fate, she sees him leaving the party with somebody else. Uh, she decides to make a very bad decision and has an incredibly bad sexual encounter with another guy. Uh, wakes up in the morning, realizes that there had been a mishap with the condom, and now she needs to get a Plan B pill. Uh, and the pharmacy will refuse it to her. The pharmacy, the guy who runs the pharmacy is uh, Jay Trandasakar from Broken Lizard. Oh, that's cool. who is he's yeah. always a, del- uh, a delight. I love that guy. Uh, 
Uh, so they decide they have to go to the nearest Planned Parenthood clinic, and that, of course, is hours away by car. So they have to go on a wacky road trip, and mishaps ensue. They begin to re-examine the nature of their friendship. Uh, who, whose fault is this, really? Um, I'm also reminded a lot of uh, uh, Booksmart in, mm-hmm. in their relationship, about how they're sort of goody-goodies who are contesting with the fact that they've made what they feel is an incredibly bad decision and have to come to terms with the fact that actually this is just life sometimes. Uh, and, and of course one of them is queer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so that, yeah. that seems to be another element. That's a, a big part of this, this subgenre. Uh, it's perfectly charming. Okay. It, uh, the, the, both of the leads are great. I, I loved Kuhu Verma. She, uh, just, She's a star waiting to happen. She's just going to find the right project at some point. Uh, and Victoria Morales uh, plays, uh, brings a lot of, at first she seems like sort of like the, the comic foil, but o- over the course of the film, she's actually given a lot more emotional depth and her own emotional journey to go on. Uh, this film was directed by Natalie Morales, um, who I've seen in, you've probably seen her on shows like The Grinder. Uh, she's had a lot of supporting roles in bigger films like the Wall Street sequel. Um, yeah, and this is her first film as a director, and she handles it, she avails herself quite well. Uh, unlike Unpregnant, which is really kind of madcap and a little bit unfocused, this one is actually incredibly tight. It's really, really well put together, uh, which for such a f- which a story which is now becoming increasingly familiar is really, really important. So if you're going to do something that's actually a little bit, I hate to say contrived because it's so new, but something that has been done before, it's best to have something that actually glues it together really, really well. And I think uh, Natalie Morales does it perfectly. Wow. That's Uh, great. Yeah, it's it's really it's How do, it's if, good. It's good. It's not that it matters, but like on like the if if you look at these three films as a, like part of a subgenre, yeah. uh, is there one that's clearly better than the others? Is the like uh, how do they never rarely, sometimes always is is okay. the best of these just because it actually bothers to confront sort of the drama of the situation, a lot of the realism of the situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also that film is very much about the way young women are treated and objectified and sexualized in a lot of really like myriad subtle ways that add into this big like freight train of mistreatment. There's a scene in Never Early, Sometimes Always, where um, the two leads work retail. One of them is handing cash to her manager and her manager like grabs her hand, like touches her hand when she's handing him money. And that just that like tiny little mo- moment seems like such a violation. Yeah. It's like this really uncomfortable moment for her. And she, she understands what's going on immediately. And she kind of recoils in disgust, but she can't call him out because it's such a small moment and she's young and he, he's the boss that she's additionally put in this really awkward situation. Uh, there aren't deep moments like that in something like Plan B. Plan B is a little bit more broad. It's a little bit uh, more mm. more widely written. Uh, it, it, it's not examining anything much deeper than what I, what I already said about sort of examining how shitty the politics are about right. birth control and women's sexuality and the control of women's bodies in this country, which, of course, should be addressed. Yeah. Um, they're also... Uh, to minorities living in ultra Christian South Dakota. So they're also, uh, there's also a, a racial dimension to this where they are, uh, recognized for their race, but thankfully never, um, never, never fall to stereotype. Mm. There's like f- fun, fun things that they are, that are very personal to them, but feel very universal. As well. Okay. 
Yeah, I, re- I, I liked Plan B. It's not, you know, going to knock anything over, but I do find it interesting that we're getting more and more of these kinds of stories. Mm-hmm. I'm interested to see if we're going to keep on going. Uh, three films denotes a trend. Agree. This is this was a little miniature trend. You can even put Book Smart in if you want yeah. four. Uh, so, where is this trend going to go? This entire new subgenre about pairs of teenage girls seeking mm-hmm. uh, sexual health. Well, and uh, um, and again, the goal of something like this, I would hope, would be to raise awareness. And again, these are stories that are catering to, or like their target demographic is mm-hmm. younger people. And they're going to see this experience dramatized. When you see it over and over again, it just hammers home the fact that this is not a unique occurrence. Yeah, yeah. This is not something that happens once. This is something that is a problem throughout the country. Mm-hmm. And yeah, hopefully that actually has an impact. That's that's really interesting. I'm, I'm sorry yeah, I missed it. Yeah, um, it's, it's on Hulu. You can watch yeah. it if you have Hulu. Uh, instead, I watched Skull, The Mask. <laughs> Isn't this a sequel to Skull? No, it's a sequel to The Mask. We had one. It was called Son of the Mask. No, actually, it actually it actually has some of the same mechanics as the movie mm. The Mask, but it's not. It's got nothing to do with uh, any of that. It's actually um, this is a Brazilian film, and it is short for uh, the, the original title was mm. Skull, and I, I hope I'm pronouncing the name of this because it's the name of a of a old South American uh, deity. Uh, but it was a uh, Skull, the Mask of Anyanga. Okay. Uh, and so, rather than say call it in America, Skull, the Mask of Anyanga, they decided to just call it Skull, colon, the Mask. Skull, the Mask. Which is not a great title. I'm just going to throw that out there. I, I know that's not the end-all be-all of the film, but I'm just going to say right now, the title is just weird. The Mask of Anyanga is a better yeah. title. Agreed. But anyway, it stands out, you know? But um, I'm actually rather fond of this film. It is a, a supernatural slasher of sorts. Uh, and uh, it opens like around World War. I forget the exact year. I think it's around World War Two, in uh, in uh, in South America, where there's some like wild wrestler assassin who kills a bunch of people and steals an ancient skull, and then they like sacrifice someone to this skull, and then the skull rattles around a bit, and something really terrible is going to happen, and then it cuts to the present day. And the skull has been found in the middle of like a rainforest. Okay. And so uh, a big corporation has enlisted someone to bring the skull back to them. But then they take it back home and it turns out that uh, this woman's girlfriend uh, is possibly involved in a cult dedicated to this deity. And so as soon as the woman's in bed, her girlfriend like puts like candles in a circle and chants the magic words over it and the skull comes to life and it pops like spider legs out of its head and starts crawling around and then All it like right. attaches to people's heads and when they're well, inside fun and when they're inside its head that you see inside this weird red and black but kaleidoscopic universe filled with with like skeletons that scream at you and shit and i'm watching this and i'm like this is awesome i have no idea what's going on but this is awesome and then um that woman dies and all everyone dies it's all death 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 Mm. and then um a cop is brought on board to investigate this bizarre ritualistic slaying uh and I love, I'm sure this is just a translation issue, but I love the translation of this because it's so evocative, Mm. uh, where she's not just like a heroic cop. She's actually 
like a controversial cop. Maybe she shouldn't be on the force because she was previously indicated in what the press call slaughter crimes, <laughs> which is a hell of okay, a crime. New career slaughter crimes. Lo- just slaughter crimes. What's called slaughter crimes? It's, it's a great title. title. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're, we're dealing with this possibly corrupt cop, and she's investigating uh, this weird murder. And then the, the skull ends up latching itself onto one of the guys who's responsible for cleaning up the crime scene after everything's been done and investigated. Mm-hmm. And now this guy has this, ju- has this big-ass skull on his head, and he goes on a fucking murder spree where he's, like, choking people with their own intestines and, like, then taking the intestines and attaching it to a knife so he can use it as a projectile weapon that he can, like, sling back to him. (laughs) And this is, like... By by the time you've gotten the intestines out, the job's done, all right? You don't need to take that extra step. No, we're still doing it. We're still... This guy's... the, The skull has been... The skull has been dormant for decades. It's got it's got ideas, and it needs to implement them. It's okay, like a, it's that shot in Suspiria where the the killer's stabbing through his victim's chest and yeah. carving a big open hole like through the chest. You can see the heart, like to see clearly, the heart, and yeah. then and then after all of that effort, stabs the heart. Yeah, I would think all that first part would have gotten the job done. Well, no, well it's. <laughs> I it's like it's, it's like symbolic. It's like signing yeah. your work, you know. It's like it's about it's about the art of the death, you mm. know. And I think that's true, actually. I, I'm joking about it, but for a lot of horror movies, you know, horror movies depict death more frankly than most mm. other genres typically do. Yes, um, and more often, certainly. And there comes this point where you you're portraying death so much in a genre that it becomes necessary to spice it up a little bit. <laughs> You know, like we've seen this, I've seen this scene so many times. I can't just see someone like just stabbed in the back and going, ah, and then falling over. It's a little rote now. Mm-hmm. So as a filmmaker, horror filmmakers like to see what they can do, like see what they come up with. And sometimes it's fun. If the tone of the movie is fun and it's just like, ah, I can't believe, let's see how gory and, and crazy this movie's going to get. Mm-hmm. This is like, there's a real movie. And then at the other end of like you know the 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 form the what am I calling here like the uh, the other end of the the spectrum ta- spectrum oh, yeah. at the other end of the spectrum hmm. there's a trauma movie okay <laughs> uh, you know what trauma is trauma is a very low budget uh, uh, studio that has produced films like the Toxic Avenger and Sergeant Kabuki Man and YPD and they'll also notoriously pick up any extremely low budget genre film provided it has sex violence or both um a lot of the trauma movies whether they're made by trauma or released by trauma barely movies like they're just there Mm. to deliver that weird outre content and sometimes that's wonderful it's like there there are some good movies that have been released by trauma they serve serve their function they serve their function you know what you're gonna get as soon as you see the trauma logo you know what you're gonna get and you're either with it or you're not. But Troma is extremely low budget. There's a handful of Troma movies that are legitimately very good. Tromeo and Juliet is one of them. Mm. But most of them are really, really on the low end of feature filmmaking in terms of budget and class and style. And then somewhere over here, there's like a real movie. And like, like and I don't mean that term derogatorily. I just mean like you, what you usually expect from a motion picture in terms of uh, budget and look and class and ambition and skull the mask is like two thirds of the way either one way or the other on that okay. list like it's got all of the the gore and craziness and 
frankly, really baffling plotting that you would want from a movie that is only trying to titillate you and show you like the weirdest, grossest kills you can find. Okay. But it also is trying to be a real movie and there are some elements of it that work better than others. Um, there's a great commentary here about how uh, corporations are coming into countries and they are basically strip mining their culture for their own personal gain. Yeah. And we're seeing that in this movie. It's very literalized. That part's fine. Um, it's also about police corruption and it also gives no fucking shits about it. Like at all. Like it doesn't really deal with, we find out that this woman is very guilty of slaughter crimes. Like, very guilty of slaughter crimes. But we're with her anyway, because we have no one else. Except, of course, for this, like, small cadre of, like, uh, priests who have been preparing for the return of these, like, elder gods. And they know martial arts and shit. And that is less a part of the movie than you might think. But when it is there, it is cool. I like it when people see Dead Alive and the thing that they take away from it isn't just the gore. It's the eye kick ass for the Lord scene. Um, So... Again, this movie, it's like, plot-wise, it's thin, and it's frankly a little confusing, uh, but as a delivery system for imaginative gore and some interesting visuals, Mm. uh, and a reasonably, like, cool, like, just, like, what if the mask but evil, like, evil, evil uh, mythology, uh, I had a good time with it. So this is uh, currently a Shutter exclusive. Uh, and you can watch it on Shutter. And if anything I just talked about sounds like your bag, don't miss it. And if what I sounded like sounds like nails on chalkboard to you, y- yeah, watch something else. <laughs> why, why wouldn't you? Like it's, it sounds like this is not your film, but like there's a very specific audience for this. And I think that there is this weird. I found this this thing where I'm like I'm I'm looking up like weird old horror movies on like Tubi or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I'm over yeah. at our local video store Cinephile and. I'll see a title and I'll look at a premise and it seems really interesting. And if I see that the movie was made in like the seventies or the eighties, or maybe the early nineties, I get really excited because there's probably been some effort put into it. But if I see it was made in the 2010s yeah, and I hadn't yeah, heard of this... it, there's a decent chance it's just made completely with no ambition whatsoever and just thrown mm-hmm. out there in the straight to video market. And, and that's not <clears throat> unilaterally true, but just the odds are, are in its yeah. favor. And, and a lot of this has to do with the technology, mm-hmm. uh, you know, digital photography versus film technology, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But yeah, I, I've encountered the exact same thing. Yeah. Uh, and on Friday nights, my wife and I have, have been sort of marathoning through just whatever schlock we can find. I recently saw films like Hawk the Slayer mm. for the first time. Uh, we watched Blackenstein the other night. Uh, oh, you know, just, just like old old exploitation movies. Yeah. And, and we kind of have a cutoff if it's like early 90s were okay. But by the time we're into like the mid two thousands, it's we don't care. If it was shot on digital yeah. video, there's it's a like, really yeah. decent chance it's not going to be worth. It. And then not again, not unilaterally true, hmm. but really decent chance because you had to really try to well, make like a, a low budget schlocky movie back when you had thirty five millimeter. Yeah, by by the late nineties, uh, too much of the public had access to irony, and it was difficult to earnestly make a schlocky kind of movie anymore. Yeah. And so whenever you come out upon a new schlocky movie, there's, there's always like a little bit too much of a wink. Yes. Yeah. In, in the case of something like Sharknado, it's nothing but winking. Agreed. Agreed. But, uh, um, so yeah, it's, if you can find just a good, legit yeah. new exploitation yeah. movie, then I'm I'm going to be all that, about that, it. That's what I'm all about. Where I'm basically saying like, there was this period where you would get movies like this, but they would just have, 
a little bit more panache and a little bit more uh, mm. sincerity. And you would see films, and some of them were funny, but like you would see films like The Evil Dead or Reanimator or Dead Alive and or Bad Taste. And these were films that were made by people who were really passionate about it mm. uh, and just really loved what they were doing. And this okay. is pretty close to that. I'm not going to say it's an instant classic like a lot of those movies were, but like it's pretty close to that. And if you're starving for that kind of movie, and you wish there were more movies like that today, mm-hmm. Skull the Mask will get you there. Skull the Mask is, okay. is is worth taking a hit off of. So, And I'm part of that audience. So on the critically acclaimed scale, where we review films on a scale of C- to C+, C is average, some good, some bad. C- is below average. We simply don't recommend it. Or maybe the worst film ever made. And C-plus is above average. We genuinely recommend it. Possibly it's the best film ever made. Anywhere in the middle is fine. On the critical claim scale, I'm going to give Skull the Mask a mild C-plus. Okay. It's it's definitely for a particular audience, but I'm in that audience, and I had mm. a good time. It's very wild, and I'm, I'll say something like this. I was never bored. Hmm. And that's something that, for this kind of movie, is a really good recommendation. I was never bored, and I had a good time. So, Skull the Mask... C plus. Uh, what else have we got here? Plan B. Plan B. Uh, a, a high C. Okay. Uh, it's it. It does everything it needs to do, and it does it well. Uh, but it's it's not revolutionary. It's not you know reinventing the wheel. Uh, Moby Doc. I'm also giving a C. Um, it's not like he's got his head, you know, off in the clouds somewhere, and it's like completely not worth seeing. Like it's actually kind of interesting to see. Like what his perspective is on himself. I'm just not sure it's particularly valuable to anybody other than fame doesn't bring you happiness, man, which is, yeah, okay. I'm just not can sure I, it was can worth I try? I'm not, yeah, <laughs> like I'm not sure it was necessarily worth the whole movie to get you there. But um, if you're a fan of Moby, it's definitely a must see, would be elevated to a C. But for everyone else, it's just kind of an interesting. Uh, sort of, uh, it's a self-centered exercise, but it's not necessarily a self-centered exercise that is hard to watch mm. or uh, isn't necessarily interesting. I think it is interesting. Um, I just don't know if it's good. I think it's a little too full of itself to be good. Um, let's see. Uh, swimming out till the sea turns blue. Swimming out till the sea turns blue. Bit of a long title. Uh, I, 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 I'll give it a C, but like I said, I want, I want input. I want to. I need study. Yeah. I need to be. I need to be learned. Yeah. So, so learn me. <laughs> okay, and please email us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is the email address if you have particular. Uh, knowledge of the subject matter of swimming out till the sea turns blue, and particularly if you've seen the film itself, mm. uh, we would love to hear from you and uh, be able to give that film the the context it really needs yeah, yeah, in yeah. order to have a real review. So it's an interesting experience. Mm. Uh, I, I didn't see it, but it sounds like it was interesting for Whitney. Mm. Uh, Cruella, uh, uh, that's a C minus. It's a C minus. It's, 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 it's too long. It's bloated. Yeah. It's, it's punk cred does not land. It's all of its all of its uh, like and it's, most interesting parts are really superficial, and mm. I don't think I don't think they're gonna age well. I think it's gonna be like yeah, you know, once 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 you know the music, and once you know what the outfits look like, there's just not a lot to this one. And I think it whiffs almost everything it tries. I think thematically it's weak. I think it's a prequel to the Underwind Dalmatians. It's weak. I think it's a re-envisioning of Cruella Duville. I don't. I think it's so reliant on the previous films that it doesn't really give her the freedom to be re-envisioned truly. Mm-hmm. Um, as a delivery system for Emma Thompson, great. But we have no shortage of those. Same thing with Emma Stone. Like I'd much rather just watch The Favorite again. Thank you. 
Like, <laughs> it just feels like it's... Yeah, if you want sumptuous outfits and, yeah. and a, a rivalry with royal Brits, yeah. then yeah, go, go yeah, see, the, it's see the, favorite. the favorite instead. Yeah, please see The Favorite. It's amazing. It's a really good movie. Uh, and then, uh, lastly, I didn't see it, A Quiet Place Part 2. Uh, also, I see. Okay. Yeah. Decent. Funny. Scary. Cool. Millicent Simmons is great. Nice. Monsters have big claws. They do. So I give it a C. <laughs> Put that on your poster. That? What Quiet Place right? Part 2. Monsters have big claws. <laughs> well, it's true, damn it. We can prove that one. Anyway, that is it for Critically Acclaimed this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Very special shout-out to all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash Network, without whom this show and any of our other shows wouldn't be possible. Uh, we want to remind everybody, if you're a fan of the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, to tune in tomorrow, because tomorrow we'll be debuting the first proper individual episode of the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club with our double feature of Beverly... Oh, sorry. Troop Beverly Hills... Why do I keep saying Beverly Hills Troop? I've seen Troop Beverly Hills like the, 50 times. All, all of the films with Beverly Hills in the title that aren't the taking of Beverly Hills, the Beverly Hills part comes first. You're right. That's probably why I'm doing it. But it's still weird. Like, I have a framed Troop Beverly Hills poster in my apartment. That's true. Whitney, confirm this. I don't know what he's talking about. Shut man. up. <laughs> he does. He has I, one. I do. Uh, we love that movie in this household, so it's weird that I kept that wrong. But anyway, it's True Beverly Hills and a gnome named Gnorm. Uh, we'll be talking about that on the next one of those. We also have a lot of other shows here at our network. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, and seriously, our Patreon is just, we're incredibly grateful to everybody, and we hope you enjoy uh, the litany of uh, uh, of podcasts that we're releasing. Uh, this is, a podcast is going live on Memorial Day, uh, which is also a day in which we're releasing five, count them, five episodes at once of our Star Trek podcast, All Our Yesterdays. It's a holiday marathon uh, for Star Trek, and we're doing <laughs> five episodes of Star Trek, the animated series. Uh, we're doing one episode per episode of Star Trek ever. And yeah, big marathon. So we hope you enjoy them. And, uh, yeah, okay, and, uh, of course, uh, you can always email us, critically, uh, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is the email address, letters mm-hmm. at criticallyacclaimed.net. You want to talk to us about something we discussed in this episode, you want to ask us questions, take us to task or anything, that's the way to do it. We might read your email in upcoming We've Got Mail. We're also on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, and uh, if you want soap, head on over to Etsy, look for Salt Cat Soap, all one word. Salt Cat Soap is also our Twitter and Instagram account. Uh, May 31st is the last day of our 10% off sale on select items. Uh, and then uh, we're actually going away for a couple of days. So the store will close down temporarily until we get back on the first Saturday of June and release a lot of cool new products, including <laughs> a jar of bisexual chaos, which <laughs> that's, is... Uh, that's soap. That's not me. That's, yeah, uh... it's, uh, we, we have like a lot of offerings for Pride mm-hmm. Month, and uh, one of them is called Bisexual Chaos. And it is a really nice smelling uh, uh, set of soap that looks like the bisexual flag. I'm going to I'm going to hold the the soap up to the mic. See if you can smell it. Get a whiff. Is it good? Yeah. See, smells good. Nice, right? Um, And uh, yeah, it's a really fascinating uh, 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 treat in soap form. And I hope you enjoy that. And I also have a design of my own that will be going live on the first Saturday of June. So, in addition to a bunch of other cool things. So please check us out, uh, and we'll tell you more about it later. And that is that for Critically Claimed. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?